This week we're going to speak on the unjust trial of Jesus. Jesus' unjust trial. Probably point out some necessities for that. The reason that he had to go through that trial. And then if you join us on Friday, how many of you are going to join us on Good Friday service? Seven o'clock. I need to see more hands. How many of you are going to come see us at seven o'clock? Thank you. Thank you. For we will talk about his crucifixion on Good Friday. And we will, we get to open up this baptismal tank and baptize half a dozen youth, a few adults. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Because of what he did on a cross. Because of the resurrection, which we'll talk about on Easter Sunday. So you can kind of see we're sequential here. We're, we're walking through this in a chronological way. And I would hate for you to miss out on the retelling of his crucifixion. Um, it's a reminder of how much he loved us and how much he was willing to submit to the Father's will to do that exact thing. This morning, we're looking at John chapter 18. And... Um, I'll try my best. I, I will not get through the entire trial. I can promise you that. Um, we would have to stay here until one o'clock or so to do that. And um, it's already been popularly voted that I don't go overtime. So um, we're going to try our best not to do that. But I do have enough notes here to probably preach three sermons. Um, and Phil told me one time the art of being a good preacher is knowing what not to say. And so... Um, I'll try my best to stay away from things that take us too far in. But before we talk about the trial, I thought I'd point out a couple things. Um, because I think if you look at his trial, um, we expect it to be done in a, a fashion like we would expect it to be done in America. Somebody said, God forbid. Um, we, okay, so innocent till proven guilty. That is not how we're going to see this. That's not what's going to happen in this trial. But I wanted to say this. Jesus was not a victim. He was not a victim. At the hands of men, either of the Jewish religious leaders or the Roman leaders, he was not a victim. In John 10, 17, 18, he states this. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. You notice he doesn't say someone else lays it down. He lays it down. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That's like nobody you know. They can all say something about how they're going to do this and that. The minute they take their last breath, it's over. All of the others that have said that they're the Messiah or another God, they can never pick their life back up again. But this one could. And it doesn't sound to me, when I read that, it doesn't sound like he's a victim of any kind. Quite the contrary. His death, which is the second thing I want to say, is every aspect of his death, the trial, the beatings, the scourging, the, the horrific crucifixions, were all in accordance with the plan of God and his will. It was all in accordance. So when we look at this, try not to look at it through the American lens of the judicial system. Look what he says here in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 6. And then we'll look at 10. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Man, you're quiet. Let me say it again. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That, you should rejoice on that. Because no matter how good you thought you were when you came to him, you were one full of iniquity. And then in verse 10 he says, and the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief for what reason just so he could be mean to his son 
Oh, no. He was pleased to do that because he was paying for your sins on the cross. Amen? Final thing I want to point out before we start into this is I want to point out that as we look at this horrible injustice and the, as it is, but I want you to think of this. As an incarnate God, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus was never not in control of what was going on in his life. He was never not in control. It may appear that others were in control, but he was in control the whole entire time. And we'll see that in the passage. Even in the circumstances that led to his arrest, his trial, ultimately his crucifixion, he knew exactly where he was going. And he, does, and he knew exactly when it was going to happen. Almost half of John is him saying, I'm in my final hours. And now, this is it. Let's read this together. I'm not going to read, I said chapter 18, but I'm not going to, there's no way that I know that I'm not going to get through this whole chapter, okay? So, um, I could almost just read it and we could go home because it's so narr- it's such a narrative thing. And um, so that's, we're going to bounce back and forth a little bit, but I will read this to you. I'm going to read up until verse 27. The wise man told me one time, if you're going to preach, at least read the passage so we can hear from the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, and those are the words I would say that go all the way back to chapter 13 of the book. But for sure, the words in chapter 17 where he prayed the whole chapter he prayed to his father but when Jesus had spoken these words he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples now Judas also who was betraying him knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples Judas then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them. I don't know if he waited for them to get up or if he waited if they were laying on the ground still. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And these were the other disciples. Let them go their way. Which I believe they were going to do without question. Because that's what Christ had designed to happen. To fulfill the word which he spoke. So he was saying, let them go this way so that he could fulfill the words that he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. People. I'm supposed to just be reading this, but... He still hasn't lost one. In craziness in April 2nd of 2023, he hasn't lost one and he's not ever going to lose one. Simon Peter then having a sword, which I have no idea what that man was doing with a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Now stop for a second again. A fisherman with a sword, I don't think he was aiming for his right ear. He was trying to take his head off. So you can imagine that he probably did one of these and it caught his ear and cut it off. Now that doesn't fit real well with let these ones go. Does it? Let this one go that's about to try and slaughter you with the sword. That didn't fit real good, but, but Christ still was able to persuade them to let them go. 
We, we continue to read. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. And this is rebuking Peter, which I think if you've read anything about Peter, you know this is kind of commonplace that he gets rebuked a little bit by the, by the Lord. Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? I've done everything to get to this point to drink the cup. Should I not drink it? I don't need you, Peter. If I needed help, he says in one of the synoptic gospels, if I needed help, I'd call legions of angels to come. Legions of angels, 10,000 or more in legions. Okay? You know that one angel slew 185,000 in the, the battle of Sennacherib. 185,000, one angel. I think that allegiance could have taken care of Christ in this circumstance, even though there was probably a thousand people here. Put the sword into the sheath, the cup, which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Oh, I'm glad he decided to drink the cup. I said, I'm glad that he decided to drink the cup. If you know him, you should be able to say, I'm thankful that he drank the cup. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Little did Caiaphas know that he was prophesying upon the, on behalf of the Lord. Because that's exactly what happened. One died for all. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciples, the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. So I must warn you that there's a back and forth here. While the trial's going on, you've got Peter outside doing this. So it's kind of a, we're switching scenes, all kind of going on simultaneously. So now, the high priest, we're back in with the high priest, then begins to question Jesus, question Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answered the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And here we go, to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. I'll take you back to a few things I'll say about the first 11 verses here. It's Jesus' betrayal and his arrest. Being betrayed by someone that had been with him for three years, Christ knowing the whole time that he wasn't really with him. Being betrayed by Judas. First we see in verse one, we see that this is the final time uh, Christ will speak with the disciples. 
they'll no longer be with him. He's going to be separated from them because of the arrest that's about to take place. And Christ knows that. And so he says, after I've spoken all these words, then we're going to go forward. We're going to go over to the garden here. And um, the garden that we've been in multiple times, basically. So it's the finality of Christ teaching his disciples in that first verse. And that garden there is Gethsemane, as it's identified in other gospels to be Gethsemane. So we look at that, then I look at verse 2 through 5, and I see Christ as a courageous person. Courageous to go right at these men that are coming after him. You see that in the passage? Do you see that? In verse 2, now Judas also was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? He went right out to them, not trying to hide, not trying to run. No, no, the courageousness of Christ. He knew what was laying before him. He knew what was coming. He was willingly going to it. They didn't need weapons. They didn't. They needed light so they could see where they were going, but they didn't need weapons. He had already decided, no matter what, I'm going with them. No matter how bad the trial gets, I'm going to be with them because I have a job to do in less than, no, I don't know, less than a few hours from now, they're going to, they're going to say that I'm going to be crucified. They're going to ask for me to be crucified and Pilate's going to hand me over because that's what happens. When I think about that, that's why I warned us not to think of this as an American-type trial. Because we would say, well, what's the charge? You've got to have a charge before you even arrest me. Not in this case. They arrested him just because they had been planning to do this for a long, long time. They had tried to do it. And he walked right through them. They were going to stone him. He just walked right through them. But now he knows it's his hour. It's his final time. So he just willingly is ready to go. But the courage just to go to him and say, one thing I love here too in the next section, even facing arrest, even facing a cross, even facing this crazy trial he was going through, he didn't lose his power, did he? What happens when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazarene. He says, here I am. I am he, I'm the one you're looking for. And what happened to them? They fell back. Now, we ain't talking about five people. We're not talking about five people. We're talking about probably 600 soldiers from Romans, from the Roman guard, probably 600 or more. You're talking a couple hundred of them Jewish religious leaders and people there. It was a hodgepodge of people at this. And those that tried to approach him, when they, when they asked that question and he said, I am he, and I think the he is added. It's in italics in my Bible. He just said, I am. I wish I could say it in the, in the, in the Greek or the Hebrew. I, I can't say it properly. But he just said, that's me. And just the words of him saying it knocked them all down. Now, come on, go ahead and arrest me. But what did they're pretty persistent, aren't they? Because they've been persistent for a while. But I'm telling you what, if I was one of those soldiers, I don't think the Roman soldiers had dealt a lot with Christ necessarily at that point, but I'd have been like, we're going to arrest this guy? He just said, I am, and we all fell down. That's what I see. So even in the face of betrayal by one of his disciples, and he had already knew he was betraying him. Remember in the upper room, he told him, go do what you have to do. Christ's power was still evident. And then this is maybe my favorite thing, and well, there's a couple here. Well, they're all my favorite thing, forget that. 
in verse 8 there he said Jesus answered I told you that I am he so if you seek me let these go their way it's such a display of his supreme love for his disciples let let these go not only was it a a display of love to let them go but he already knew that they were going to be the ones that launched the church he knew that they can't be imprisoned or have their heads chopped off or anything they're going to be them they're my guys when i leave here they're going to carry on except of course for judas and once again he shows his ability and power because he was able to actually take not in this particular passage but in some of our other gospels it talks about that he actually had the ear grow back on malchus actually just he's back like nothing ever happened now if the power of him knocking me down by simply saying something didn't affect me very greatly that would have freaked me out guys I'd have been like I am up out of here you guys go ahead and arrest him if you want but I'm gonna be somewhere else but they were so enraged and the religious leaders were so wanting to kill him to murder him now they were trying to do it in this legal fashion but it wasn't anything legal about it but I noticed too that no matter his earthly circumstance no matter his earthly circumstance he continued to obey the father he continued to submit to the father he submitted and he obeyed him you see that shall I not drink this shall I not drink the cup the father has put before me it's the whole reason I came I have to drink the cup so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus why did they arrest him do you see anything in the passage that says why they arrested him do you see any accusation even nope You know, you usually get accused of something when you get arrested. You get indicted to go to trial. There's not just, we're going to take you to trial now for no reason. And I don't see one presented here. I I was going to read this. I probably should have read it to you guys a little earlier. But now we're fixing to go into the trial. So let me give you an idea. I wrote down some things uh, that I found in uh, one of my commentaries about how illegal these trials were about all of the things that happened in the trial. So as we walk through it, just kind of look for these things. Um, No trial was to be held during feast time. Well, they're doing this right before the Passover. Huge feast, huge time there. Matter of fact, they're doing it, they're trying to get it done before the Passover. That's what, such a rush to get it done. Each member of the court was to vote individually to convict or acquit, but Jesus was convicted by just an acclamation, just like an overall word, just take him. If the death penalty was given, a night must pass before the sentence was carried out. That didn't happen either. Only a few hours have passed before Jesus was placed on a cross. The Jews had no authority to execute anyone. And of course, they didn't actually execute him. The Roman soldiers did that. But they're the ones that basically uh, demanded it. They demanded he be killed. No trial was to be held at night. This trial was held before dawn. The accused was to be given counsel or representation, but Jesus had none. And then the accused was not to be asked self-incriminating questions. But Jesus was asked if he was the Christ. He was asked several self-incriminating questions. You see, they had this, the Jewish courts had the Fifth Amendment figured out before the United States was ever around. You can plead the Fifth here in our country whenever you might implicate yourself in a guilty act. You can just say, I plead the Fifth. I won't say anything to incriminate myself. And they weren't, supposed to, they weren't even supposed to ask him these questions. And yet they did. So let's take a look. This is the, the 
in, in verse 12 here, we look at um, this man named Annas. They led him to Annas first. And Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was actually the high priest during this year when Christ died. When it says that year, it doesn't mean they changed the priest every year. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the high priest didn't get changed until he died. They typically, that's how they changed him. But Annas had been switched out after, I think, nine years of being the high priest because the Romans, who were in charge of all of this, they saw that he had great power and authority amongst the Jewish people. And the longer that he was in that office, the more that grew. Even if he wasn't liked by them, he still had this authority and power over them. And so they didn't like that, so they removed him. But now then, historically, we know that the next five high priests were sons of Annas's. And then the next one was a grandson of his. And now we see Caiaphas, who happens to be his son-in-law. I've, I did an entire study on nepotism one time. And this is nepotism at its fullest. You're going to get rid of me, but go, oh, that's okay. Go ahead and get rid of me because I got a son I'm going to put in here next. And then when we're, tired with, when we're tired of him and he's been here too long, we'll just give it to the next son. I ran out of sons. Let's give it to a grandson. I don't have any more grandsons. I'll give it to my son-in-law. There's reasons for that. And you say, why Annas? Why did they bring him there? I think Annas wanted him to come before him. Because Jesus had messed with Annas's livelihood in the temple. Annas was in charge of the money changers, and Annas was in charge of selling the animals. Or I don't know if he was necessarily right in charge of it, but he sure got a good skim off the top. He made a lot of money off of the Passovers and the sacrificial lambs. Because you could bring one from where you traveled, but it had to pass the inspection of his men to be considered pure and whole. Otherwise, you, couldn't, you would never present a sacrifice on the altar that wasn't pure, that wasn't clean. And they would always find something wrong with your sacrifice that you brought. The animal you brought, they would always find something wrong with that one. You know why? Because it's called supply and demand. You might have traveled three nights to get there, or four nights, or maybe even longer. You didn't get in your portion drive there. You had to get on a camel. So on you come. So now you have no animal. They've just said they rejected yours. Now you've got to pay whatever price they set to get an animal that you can sacrifice for the Passover or for your sins or however you want it. Whatever that sacrifice was for for that particular feast, you had to pay them. And they were getting premium prices. You can't go back home and get an animal. The other one was the money changers. All right? So they used a particular money in Jerusalem that maybe wasn't used in the outlying areas. You had to pay a fee in order to put your animal on the altar. In order to sacrifice your animal, you had to pay a fee to the temple or to these priests. So you couldn't pay in your hometown money. You had to pay in Jerusalem's money. Okay, I don't know if they're using denarii. I don't know what they were using. doesn't say. But you had to do that, and so you had to pay a premium to exchange that money. Kind of reminds me of online giving. You're going to use your credit card to pay for something? How many of you get that little notice when you pay for something with your credit card? Uh, this is going to cost you 2.5% more than the cost of the item because you're using your credit card. Because you've got to pay somebody to handle the money. And that's what they were doing back here. So Annas was messed with because you remember in, in the scene there where Christ turned over the tables of the money changers and whipped them and got them out of there. Get out of here. You're violating the temple. Well, that was directly messing with Annas' income source and, and the other priest's income source. Those that were in his family were all being affected by this. 
So he's like, oh, no, no, you're arresting him? He was probably there for the arrest. I don't know if he was or not, but he probably sent him out to do it. That's for sure. Remember, he was, by the Romans, he was put aside. The Jewish people still saw him as somebody with a lot of authority, ton of authority, and a lot of influence, for sure. And so that's why they took him to him first. Kind of a preliminary trial, if you would. Trying to find out enough evidence to actually put him in front of the Roman court. And then you're going to see that they struggled with that. They had a big struggle with that. Pretty hard to find evidence on somebody that's done nothing wrong ever. Hard to find that evidence. So what you do is create it. Or you take things out of context completely. You ever tell a story to somebody or talk to somebody, they take what you said and go somewhere else and say it, and they take it completely out of context what you said. That's what they did to Christ. So this is why he was before Annas. I think Annas wanted him there because, oh, you messed with me. Now you ain't so big and bad now, are you? You're in front of me. Now I got control. Or at least he thought he had control. Remember what we said earlier. Christ was in control of this whole thing. What else happens here, though? That Caiaphas, which was his son-in-law, was the one who had advised the Jews that was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Let me just show you that. John 11. I already said it, but I'll just read it to you so I don't think I made it up. Look what he says. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, this is verse 49 of chapter 11. I'm sorry if I didn't say that. He says to them, you know nothing at all, do, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Did you, did you get that? It's expedient that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. That's an interesting statement made by a guy that didn't even realize what he was saying. The Lord was using, the, God was using him to make a statement that was very true. It was very necessary for the one man to die so that all might be saved. That when he died and was buried and rose again, his righteousness is imputed to you if you put your faith in that. That's saving the whole world. If they'll believe. So this is who the Caiaphas is. He's the high priest that tells them this. And now, look what they're doing. They've realized that if they don't kill him and, and his kingdom starts to get set up, that there's probably going to be a a war of sorts. They're going to lose all of their income sources at that point. These priests and these Pharisees who had gotten used to Fat City making all this money on other people in the name of religion. Don't know anybody that does that, do you? So that's what was happening. It was expedient that the one man die on behalf of the people. And they all bought into that. They all bought into it for, the, for what, I think it's one of those verses that they intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. But now we segue a little bit from there and we go to talk about Peter's first denial. So we're simultaneously, this is gonna happen. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. The problem with Simon Peter following Jesus at this point was a little bit different than it had been for three years because one of the gospels says that he was following him from afar, from far off. So he might have had a telescope he's looking at him with and following along. Let me tell you something this morning. If you're following Jesus, you shouldn't be far off. This morning, if you're following Jesus, or is it afternoon? This afternoon, if you're following after him, get close to him. Don't look, I gotta get a Hubble space 
telescope to see him. I want a relationship that says, I want to get an arm around him. I want him to get his arm around me. And I don't want to follow him from afar. And so was another disciple. And this is this another disciple. We, we see this a little bit in John. Because John's writing this book. And John will never say hardly anything ever about himself. Although he will say that he outran Peter to the tomb. He doesn't say it in John though. But others say that it was John that ran to the tomb before Peter. So I think Peter probably had a few too many donuts at the coffee cart. Now that, does, now that disciple, the, another disciple, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now that's interesting in and of itself. So John was known by the high priest. How did that happen? Well, let's see. If you do a little study on John and see what his lineage was, you will know that his mother was related to Mary. And Mary was related to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was married to a guy named Zacharias, who happened to be, you guessed it, a priest. So there's a real good chance that he had been in those surroundings before. He had been on that compound before. And that they recognized who he was. So when he walked to the door and said, I'm just going to go right in over here to Annas' household here into into this trial situation he could just walk in because he was known Peter didn't have that privilege but Peter was standing at the, out, at the door outside so the other disciple again I believe it was John who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper brought Peter in then the slave girl who kept the door So she was the watcher of the door. Said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? I want you to think about that. How threatening is this? How threatening is this? A little slave girl at the door, she's not yelling this out. She's just talking to him directly. And she says, it's this very simple question. It's not even an attacking question. And this this would tell me that this slave girl was aware that the other man was a disciple. Don't you see that? I mean, maybe I'm guessing. So he was there with another disciple. That was obviously evident to her. That's why she says, hey, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And what's Peter's response? An, An absolute, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, charcoal fire, because it was cold they were warming themselves and Peter also was standing with them warming himself okay so now shift back to the courtroom back to Annas and we see that Jesus is interrogated by Annas he starts to be asked some of those questions that he should not have even asked him Christ had the had the right not to answer these questions because they would incriminate him in the court So he questioned him about his disciples and about his teaching. Um, And how does he defend himself? He said, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. I don't have some little thing I'm whispering in people's ears. Did he not? I'm sure he spoke to his disciples without everybody around, but not about things that he was trying to teach. He taught openly to everyone. And he said it out loud where he could be followed. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Where is the witness? Where's the witness? I've spoke this openly in front of everyone at every one of the synagogues that I've spoken. I speak it out loud. If If I've done something wrong, where's the witness that says I'm doing something wrong? Well, he doesn't have a witness. He's trying to build a case in the courtroom. In most courts, you have to prove you're, you've got some reasonable cause before you do this. I must hurry.
when he had said this, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he said this, um, this happens to everybody when they don't answer a question. Um, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answered the high priest? Do you see the anathema of this whole thing? What I see is you're talking to the high priest when you say that. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? If I'm speaking the truth, why did you hit me? And you know, it wasn't like I'm gonna punch him in the shoulder. It wasn't like a little slap. This, the, the Greek word would indicate that he was hit with a stick in the face. Like, whap! Don't you know you're talking to the high priest? How can you talk to him in that fashion? And this guy wasn't really into the, he's trying to gain favor with the high priest more than likely. And so what happens? Annas becomes frustrated because he can't seem to find anything. Can't seem to find anything that's gonna um, cause Christ to, to need a trial in front of Roman soldiers or Roman courts, civil courts. And so what's he do? I'm just going to send him to Caiaphas. So he sends him to Caiaphas. And this particular passage doesn't show Caiaphas going through a similar thing, but ran Jesus through the same kind of an interrogation in other passages. This is what I want to get to, and then we'll be done in a minute. This leads us to Peter's second and third denials in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so we're back outside again. He's at the fire. And so they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the slaves of the high priest. Being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Seems like if you cut his cousin's ear off, let's say, uh, if you cut one of my cousin's ears off in my presence, I would be like, I think I know who you are. And that's kind of what's going on here. And then 27. Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed, fulfilling what Christ had told him. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. At this moment, according to Luke 22, verses 61 and 62, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And oh, that look. You ever do something... I've hurt my wife before, not physically, but I've said things cutting, rude, because I wanted what I wanted. None of you have ever done that type of thing, I'm sure. But without a word, without her saying a word to me, she could just give me a certain look. And that look is, how could you do that to me? You ever had that? You ever have your parents disappointed in you giving you a look like that I certainly have and I think that this was worse than any of those I do because I think Peter remembered the words of the Lord I think he already knew them I think he, in the first denial he thought ooh I got two more I got two more maybe I can beat this but the second and third came quickly together before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter was so overwhelmed with shame and guilt and grief at his sins of denial that he went out and wept bitterly. You don't weep bitterly if, if you don't care. You weep bitterly when you care. You see, if my wife gave me that look and I didn't love her, it wouldn't matter to me that she gave me that look. But I loved her. I still love her. I loved her at that moment still, even when I was being foolish. I was wrong. I was in sin. So, so far you're seeing, now there was one more trial that the religious leaders did and it was after the verdicts were kind of laid out. It was in the morning time at, at the sunrise. They affirmed all of those verdicts. That one's not in John, but that's what took place. But I, I was going to say this to you, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. 
What kind of trial was this? What kind of trial was this? This was not a trial. It wasn't a trial in the worst of courts. It's not a trial. There was no indictment. There was no crime. There was no witnesses. And on top of that, if you read a little further down in that Luke 22, they were putting a cloth on his head and beating on him. And saying, oh, if you're, if, you're so, if, you say, if you're who you say you are, when we hit you, tell us who hit you. You know what? He could have. But he refused to do that. So, you imagine you got somebody that's on trial. You beat them. You have no accusation even against them. They've done nothing wrong. And you want to call this a trial? I call it a plot of murder. They plotted to murder him early on, and now they're doing it. It wasn't a trial. It was a plot to murder Jesus. The difference between Judas and Peter, listen to this. The difference between Judas and Peter, what was the difference? They both betrayed him. Let me tell you the difference. Judas got paid for betraying him. Peter wasn't getting paid anything. But Judas hated him. He didn't truly love Christ. He had no remorse. He had no remorse. And when I say remorse, I talk about a remorse that turns one to repentance. There was no repentance. He felt shame, I think. Not even positive of that. But he hung himself. You would say there was some guilt there, I would say. Peter loved Jesus. That's the difference. Peter loved Jesus Christ. Peter had remorse that led to repentance and in his repentance it led to forgiveness and in that forgiveness restoration John 21 Christ meets with Peter in his resurrected state and he asks him three questions three times in a row, three to cover the three denials. Peter, do you love me? And I think the first one was a sheepish yes. I think it was more of a yes. Of course I do. Then he said it again. Well, yes, Lord, I love you. And then he says it a third time. And you got to think Peter's going, I've already said it twice. Yes. And then he says, feed my sheep. Doesn't he? Feed my sheep. Look. (laughs) Peter is restored there in 21. And he's restored to the point that he is then used by God to preach the truth, the good news on the day of Pentecost. You would have thought after denying him three times, God wouldn't be able to use him anymore. No, when God restores and redeems, he forgives truly. He truly forgives at that point. And this was horrific sin. This was probably a deeper cut to Christ than even Judas's sin. Because Judas's sin was actually, actually produced him being able to go to the cross and die. What can we learn from Peter? Here we go, and then I'll hush. Number one, we are weak. We're weak. Number two, don't be caught up in self-confidence. Peter was so confident that he would never give up I'm never, I'm telling you, when Christ said before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, I'm guaranteeing you inside of Peter, he was going, I will not. 
self-confident. Listen to this one. Don't go to sleep at a prayer meeting. All of them went to sleep during the prayer meeting. Remember that? Don't go to sleep during the prayer meeting. Get enough rest so that when you go to a prayer meeting, you're fired up and ready to pray. Don't hang around dangerous people. Why are you flirting with the world? They'll do nothing but harm you. And don't give in to fear. Don't give in to fear. Galatians 1.10 I do not do what I do to please men. I do what I do to please God. For if I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus Christ. What does fear do? The same thing. I'm going to, oh, I want to keep everybody happy. Well, good luck telling people they're going to hell and keeping them happy at the same time. But you know what? You've got to tell them. But you've got to do it with love and kindness and gentleness. And if you've ever been caught in one of these, if you're in one right now, let me tell you what you can do. We go back to Peter for the example. Ask for forgiveness. Tell the Lord you love him and ask him for forgiveness and he will lift you up and he will use you in ways that you never imagined. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. I want to thank you for this kangaroo court trial. And I want to thank you, Jesus, for... (laughs) There's something about when you know the end of everything makes it a little bit easier, I think, Lord. But I want to thank you, Jesus, for going to a cross on my behalf. You know me. better than I know myself you know every person in this room in that same way and yet you still went to a cross on our behalf and I want to say thank you thank you thank you for putting up with the unjust ones that you had to put up with to fulfill what the Father had sent you to do. It was necessary. All the rewards of an unjust trial for us, the rewards of that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.